That's, that's the uh, sort of the catchphrase from this from this passage that we're going to look at today. We're going to be in Philippians two, and uh, as I just think about that as a phrase and what it could possibly mean, we'll we'll talk a little bit about what this passage focuses on. But if you think about what what kind of mind Christ has, we can look in the Bible and we can see what what do we know about him. They could give us a clue about the things that might go through his mind. Clearly his mind is higher than ours. So we can only have a glimpse, a clue, or maybe a framework. But this man is also God, but he also is a man. What does he know and what does he think about? We know that he's eternal and we know that he's the creator. We know that he, he designed the world with his wisdom and knowledge. And for any of you that are scientifically minded, we know that, that the amount of things that we learn and that, that as our experience and our knowledge grows, that the, we discover the more that we don't know yet. And so he encompasses all of that. He knows that. He knows all the things we don't yet know. And he created all the things that we do know. He also has the power to create he knows the end from the beginning. He understands history because he's writing it. He understands the past and he knows all the details of the past. But he also understands the future and he knows all the details of the future. These things are in the mind of Christ. He also knows, and we see this in Scripture, that he knows the, the very thoughts of the hearts of people. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motivations, even when we, when we hide them well. He knows. He knows our intentions, and He can even influence those. He can change our hearts, and we pray that He does. Such genius, such power, and such comprehensive, complete knowledge and wisdom. But the passage today highlights something different about the mind of Christ, as we'll see. We're in the second week in Paul's letter to the Philippians. A few years ago, my Sunday school teacher, some of you know who that is, uh, Kevin was my Sunday school teacher back in probably 2011, I think this happened. And he brought a rather remarkable challenge to the class. And he said, hey, I've got an idea. Let's, let's memorize Philippians together. And for most of us, that was a pretty bold thing to propose because a lot of us might struggle to memorize one or two verses, let alone an entire book. But, but some of us in the class said, okay, that sounds crazy, but we'll give it a shot. We'll try. And, um, and so we did. Um, I was one of those. And, and we made up these little books. Some of us did. I think, I think most of us ended up making up little books. And we cut out the verses and we put them in our little books so that we could carry the book because it fits in a pocket. And we carried our little books with us and we... Uh, we memorized Philippians, just a few verses at a time. So we would have maybe four to six or seven verses a week. And, and that's doable. It takes effort and it takes diligence, but you can do it. Um, and after a few months, we actually memorized Philippians. I'm not even kidding. We really did. It still amazes me actually now that I say that. But we really memorized an entire book. And, and I love what Pam does in her constant encouragement for the kids to memorize 
and then also encouragement of adults to also memorize. Because it isn't only for kids. To memorize the scripture is to try and to attempt to conform our minds to how Christ's mind works, right? He wrote this. So, through Paul, through, through his servants. So, I thought since I'm preaching from Second Philipp- or from Philippians 2 today, I would, I would uh, take a shot at going back and seeing, okay, how much do I remember and how much have I forgotten? And I was, I was really pleasantly surprised how easily it came back. It's, it was impressed very, very deeply in my brain back in 2011. So I want to I recite a few verses. I can't do the whole entire thing, but I want to do a few for you this morning. I want to start with the very opening verses of the book. Because, uh, because Paul's kind of laying this, this groundwork of affection for his people that are in Philippi. And, um, you know, Kevin talked about last week in his sermon, this uh, affectionate greeting to them, explaining his, his affection and how he's in prison in Rome, but, but he's grateful for their faithfulness and their partnership. So he says, uh, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you. Oh, my goodness. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And I'm going to use my cheat if I have to, just because uh, I don't want to make this crazy. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's how he opens his letter. With encouragement, with affection, and with a promise that God is doing a work. It's not dependent on their efforts. God is doing a work and he will bring it to completion. So then we move into chapter 2. In chapter 2, he's established this affection and this, uh, and this uh, love for these people. But now he's moving into some exhortation, some, some explanation. And he says, he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Think, he said, let each of you think not only of your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says, and this is, this is what Weston referred to, we were chatting this morning, the Christ hymn. He launches into this, this poem, this great poem, and he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, counted equality with God a thing not to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is that, that Christ hymn. 
And we talked this morning about, about exhortation and teaching and Scripture. And Paul's wrapping it all up here in these tight few verses. All these things. Because then he follows right after that and he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I'm going to stop there because we've had, we've had theology, we've had teaching, we've had exhortation. Now let's talk about these things. This beautiful passage. Okay. So what do we do with this? The mind of Christ. I want to focus on three main points today as we consider the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? How can we get the mind of Christ? And what does it look like when we have it? Those are the three questions that I want to examine. What is the mind of Christ? How can we get it? And what does it look like when we have it? So the first one, what is the mind of Christ? Well, I want to kind of separate this out into two main things. Because as, as Paul describes about Jesus, it's really two things. Choosing humility. He chose humility. And putting others first. And those are the two main things. I want to walk through because there's so much power in these words. The words are so uh, significant. and They're so packed with meaning. So choosing humility. Christ is always and has always been God. Preeminent over creation. Weston said he's been studying Colossians. And Colossians has a beautiful passage. I'm not going to go into that because I'm already probably going to go long. But, but we know that Christ is eternal. He has been from the beginning, from before the beginning. He was the, he, it was through him that all things were created. We, Paul tells us right here that he was in the form of God. John told us that in the beginning the word was with God and the word was God. Christ the eternal, Christ the divine. And all things were created through him and without him nothing was made that has been made. He's the creator with ultimate power. Jesus himself told the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. Those are strong words. And yet, Christ, the God-man, well, at the time, God himself, right? But he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does this mean? This is kind of a strange turn of phrase, I think. A thing to be grasped. What it means, I think, is he did not hold on to his position of authority. He didn't consider that he had to just grab it and cling to it as if someone could take it away from him. He wasn't insecure about it. And he was willing to let it go. He knew, he knew that if he came down in humility and obedience, the Father would hold his place. He didn't have to hold on. We tend to hold on to things that we think are that we fear losing, that might seem at risk to us. Those are the things we hold on to and we cling to. Jesus didn't cling on to his position of authority, his equality with God. He didn't have to hold on to that. He let it go. He willingly gave it up, knowing that he would regain it. Scripture tells us that he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now if we think about this, the divine, the eternal God, who has created all these things. And he humbles himself 
by coming down and taking on the flesh of his creation. A human, a creature, is the servant necessarily to his creator. Whether he's an obedient servant is another question. But he's clearly a servant. He's clearly a, a, sub, uh, a subservient person to the God that made him. And Jesus willingly took the form of this servant. And he was born, physically born in flesh. And he did it willingly, stepping down from perfection and glory into the messy world of sinful and rebellious creatures. And then it says, after that step down, he became obedient to the point of death. Now, if Jesus had taken on the role of a king in the world, a human king, he could have been the, the emperor of the entire world. With just, just by making the motion, he could have been. That's not what he chose to do. But if he had, that would have been a massive step down. Right? He's God of everything. To be the king of the world, that's a, that's a step down. But that's not what he did. No, he kept going. And we, and we see in Paul's words this progression of down and down and down and down. Because Jesus had to take several steps down. Becoming obedient to the point of death. So he knew the Father's will was that he would pay. He would give his life for sin. So the one with the authority to command anything, to create or destroy with his infinite power, chose to become an obedient one. He chose to put his will aside and execute the will of someone else. Just to show his perfection, the completeness of his humility and obedience, he went all the way to death. A willing and obedient death. But that's not even it. It's not done yet. Because Paul says, even death on a cross. Because some deaths can seem kind of glorious. A warrior that dies in battle, defending a righteous cause. Wow, there's some glory in that. That's not how Jesus died. A person that died, lives a good life and dies in old age with family and loved ones around them in a peaceful way. That's kind of a nice thought that a person could die in that way. That's not how Jesus died. Jesus' death was humiliating. It was excruciating. He was stripped naked and nailed to a wooden cross. It was intended to be as painful as it could be and as humiliating as it could be. That's how it was designed. People are good at designing cruel things. Don't forget that, that Jesus didn't just lose a political battle. He did this willingly every step of the way. At every step of the way, he still was divine. He still had the power. And he chose not to exercise it. So he was obedient all the way to death. He could have stopped it at any time. In fact, if you remember when he was arrested, what happened? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Who, who is he? And he said, I am. And he said, I am. Even the soldiers that came to arrest him fell down because of the power of his words. They still let them arrest him. He was never out of control. Obedient all the way. So what did he do? Well, he put others first. In big things and in small things. So we look at this crucifixion. It's a unique one-time event in the entire history of the world. That the perfect God-man could be crucified. There were many crucifixions, but his, his was the only one 
that paid for other people's sins. So this is huge. Big things. But he also served in small ways. And we need to understand that because we can't serve. We can't serve in the big way that he did. But we can serve in small ways. Now I, I remember that as he, he died on the cross, which was huge. But we see in Scripture the example of he and his disciples walking and being tired. They're exhausted from the service that they've been doing, from the ministry and walking around. And the crowds are following them. And they make an effort to get away from the crowd so they can have some time. This is in Mark. And they get off to the side and they think they've escaped the crowds, but no, they really haven't. And the crowds come up and find them. And it says that Jesus looked, like, looked, looked at them and recognized that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And even though he was exhausted, he turned and ministered to them, taught, healed, and loved. Because he gave up his time and he gave up his preference and he gave up his comfort. Small things. And I would ask you then, this is the exhortation part. This is Paul. He's, he's exhorting us. How should we live? You know, in light of these truths. And I would ask you, do you, sometimes we do make big sacrifices, not as big as Jesus, but they can be big, right? And I would ask husbands, do you work hard for your family? Do you give up a lot of time? Are you sacrificing? You might be. I feel like I do sometimes. But let me ask you this. Do you think that your big sacrifice entitles you to your own way in every small thing? Do you think you can pay one big sacrifice and then you get your way everywhere else? That's not how Jesus worked. He could have. He could have said, no, I'm here to die on the cross. But in all everything else, I want my way. But that's not what he did. He said, I'm here to die on the cross. And I'm here to die in every other little thing along the way. I'm going to give of myself so that you can have what you need. I would challenge husbands with that. And wives, you make big sacrifices too. You spend hours and hours and hours every day with children, raising children. But before that, you carry the children. We have several ladies here carrying babies. And it's beautiful, but it's a sacrifice, right? Do you think that your husband owes you for that? Do you think that your family owes you? Because you made those big sacrifices, now you must get your way in every other thing. Mm, be careful, ladies. Just like husbands, we have to be careful. Children, do you sometimes think if you do something nice for your brother or sister, is that a license for you now to demand your own way? No, it's not. It's not. Volunteers in the church, people who serve, and we have a lot of people who serve. Do you think that your sacrifice of service entitles you to get in your way? Be careful. Be careful. And givers. This happens in so many churches. And we, we have generous givers in our church. And honestly, I haven't seen this here. But it is a temptation for a, for a generous giver to think that then they are entitled to their way with what happens with the money of the church. And we have to be careful about that. Uh, just because we haven't ever had the problem yet doesn't mean it couldn't. And we want to remind ourselves and exhort ourselves to be humble about these things. So the principle here is that the mind of Christ is really about choosing humility. That's what Paul's teaching us. The mind of Christ is so much more, but the principle is that he is choosing humility and we are to choose humility. Obedience and servanthood. 
And I want you to notice that this is the absolute opposite of what the world teaches. Because the world would teach us what? We should seek glory. We should seek fame. We should seek recognition. We should seek power and authority. Why? We want, we want people to obey us. We want our way. We want to be able to tell people what to do. Because we know so much and we know so well. We want others to be our servants and do what we want. But that's not the example that Jesus gave. And that's not the command that Paul's giving us. So point two, how can we get this mind of Christ? How can we get it? Well, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's basically saying, this is not a far thing. You've already got it. You already have it in Christ. And remember, this should be natural for us to adopt and cultivate. As believers, we should be able to take this and say, yeah, this is natural. This makes sense. Because we understand, we understand Jesus. And, I, and I, I think it's really, really important to look here at what Paul's saying here at the beginning of these verses. He asks the Philippians, he asks us to think about what has been given. Because he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ. Well, what does the gospel encourage you? Knowing that his grace, mercy, forgiveness overrides all the wrong that you've ever done. Knowing that he loves you even though you don't deserve it. How could this be anything but encouraging? It has to be the most encouraging thing you could hear. And Paul's saying, so folks, if there's any encouragement in Christ, it's kind of rhetorical, right? And then he says, any participation in the Spirit? Well, are we participating with the Spirit? Are we allowing the Spirit to participate with us? If you're a believer, he's promised that his Spirit would come and make a home in us, with us, right? And what does the Spirit do? He teaches. He encourages. He reminds about the gospel. He helps us. He prays on our behalf, even when we don't know what to say. Right? And He unites believers in a body. So, we have encouragement in Christ. We have participation in the Spirit. And then Paul says, any comfort from love? What is love comforting? I hope so. Right? Paul just spent the last chapter talking about the affection that he has for the Philippians. Praising them for the affection that they have for each other. And he's saying, so, if you have comfort from this love, that should make this easier. It should make it easy for you to understand the mind of Christ. Within the church, the love between believers should be a comfort. This understanding that we're accepted by each other, as well as our Lord, brings comfort. And then he says, affection and sympathy. Wow. Paul, the cold doctrinaire, is talking about affection and sympathy. Paul spoke warmly, actually, in chapter 1 about his affection for the believers in Philippi. He recognizes their affection for each other. Paul's not cold, by the way. That was sarcastic. Um, he, he loves these people with a warmth. And boy, we should too. We should love each other with a warmth. Um, yeah, I'll get there in a minute. So what else does he tell us? Well, later on then in the passage... When we're talking about how, how do we get this mind of Christ. And Paul tells us, therefore work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. Now this is an interesting passage. What does this mean to work out your salvation? Because we Baptists love to say that the salvation doesn't come through works. And here's Paul saying, work out your salvation. So what's going on here? Have we got it wrong? Do we forget this verse? No, I don't think so. But... But let's look at what he might mean by this. Well, work can mean a couple things. 
And I think it means two things here. Work can mean doing, clearly. Work can mean doing, so we take action. We put our beliefs to work in humble service to each other. When he says work out your salvation, yeah. Here's your salvation, now work in it. Work within it. Work it out. We adopt these teachings. We shape our lives around them. The work doesn't save us. It can't, right? But this is the work we were meant to do when we were saved. Paul also taught in Ephesians, he said, by grace you were saved, not of works. And then he followed up by saying, we are his workmanship, created for good works in Christ. So Paul is clearly saying, your works didn't save you. The mercy of God saved you. But now that you're saved, go work it out. Go do things, the things that have been prepared beforehand for you. Go do these works. So working out our salvation is doing the things that saved people were created to do. And I would say too, because Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that's a strange thing to say, right? If we're, if we're working out and doing good works, why should we have fear and trembling? Why would we do that? Work out doesn't always mean doing. Sometimes it means thinking. If we're trying to work out a problem, if I'm trying to work out why something happened, understand something. And we should think. We should use our brains that God gave us. We should think about our salvation. We should consider the sacrifice that Jesus made. We should consider our guilt before God. And the great mercy that He showed. Right? So where does fear and trembling come in? When we consider what God's justice would mean to us without the mercy... How can we do anything but fear and tremble? The perfect God who can see all of our intentions and all of our actions. And he knows even sometimes when we do good things that look good, we might have ulterior motives <laughs> that stain even the good things that we do, let alone the bad things. Fear and trembling are a reasonable reaction to thinking about God's justice. If you don't have some fear and trembling when you think about God's justice, you haven't thought about God's justice very well. So when we consider that some will actually reject that mercy, the mercy that's offered will be rejected by some people. And when we think about that, how can we not have fear and trembling for them? It's appropriate. It helps us to be humble before God and among other believers, if we have a little bit of fear and trembling about what God's justice can ultimately mean and how we, how we deserve it and yet we've been relieved of it, how can we not be humble? How can we not take on this mind of Christ in that context? So the third point I want to talk through here. What does it look like when we have it? What does it look like in a church? In a family, when we, when we actually have this mind of Christ, this attitude of humility. Well, for Jesus, what did it look like? It looked like teaching. It looked like healing. It looked like Him walking around and, and loving people. And then it looked like Him suffering and dying. That's what it looked like for Jesus. What does it look like for us? Well, Paul tells us we need to give up rivalry and conceit. Wow. We need to stop demanding our own way. We need to stop jockeying for position of influence. Whether that's at home or in the church. But especially in the church. We need to stop assuming our ways are best and demanding to be considered. 
What else do we have to give up? This is interesting. We give up grumbling and complaining. Wow. I gave up grumbling and complaining. That saved a lot of words for other things. According to these verses, <laughs> uh, according to these verses, what would keep us from being blameless and innocent? Because God says, don't grumble and complain so that you can be blameless and innocent. Well, grumbling and complaining will keep us from being blameless and innocent. Ouch, if we're, if we're to be without blemish, our obedience must be like Christ's, willing, not complaining, absolutely sold out, not double-minded. Do you jockey for position? Do you maneuver for influence? Do you try to get things done your way to suit your preferences? Do you grumble or complain or dispute? Not if you want to be blameless before God. <laughs> no. So these are things we can do and not do. But what does it also look like? And, and Paul uses these words. It looks like affection. True, real affection. And Paul's great at doctrine. And a lot of us love the doctrine. We should love the doctrine. It's logical. It makes sense to us. It gives us, it gives us clarity in how we think. But Paul doesn't stop with doctrine. He, he moves on. He actually loves these people. He loves the people of Philippi. He loves the people of Ephesus. Even Corinth. Those crazy ones that cause so much drama. He loves them. He loves them. And we are to love too. With real affection. And real sympathy. Real emotion. So guys. If we think that. We, a, lot of, a lot of people I know. Including myself. Will use this phrase. Love is a verb. And there's a ton of truth to that. And I'm not going to dispute it. Right? Because sometimes we do things that we don't feel like doing. We override our emotions so that we can love. So that we can show love. But sometimes love is a feeling. And it's real. And it ought to be. If Christ has filled you, if you have the mind of Christ, that affection should be real. Absolutely should be real. Now, the second thing is it looked like for Jesus is it looked like glory. Because what, what Paul tells us here in this hymn is that therefore God has exalted him to the highest, right? Given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So, Jesus didn't grasp the glory. He let the glory go. He came down in obedience and humility. The Father exalted him back to glory. Now with a name, Jesus. And the name demands ultimate respect. Ultimate respect. Universally across the board. Not just for Christians. Yes, Christians will bow the knee. Christians will confess that he's Lord. Yes. But everyone else will too. Everyone. Everyone else. Unbelievers, believers in other religions, they're all going to bow their knee and they're going to confess, Jesus is Lord. If they didn't confess before they died, if they didn't confess before Jesus came back, they will confess after. But there will be a big difference. Because some will do it with joy and love and praise. And there will be tears of joy in this confession. But some will do it realizing that they didn't confess Him beforehand. That they rebelled against Him and now they face judgment because they rejected Him. And there will be tears, but they won't be tears of joy. There will be tears of absolute anguish and hopelessness because it will be too late. 
that Jesus will get the glory. Whether we give it willingly or whether, whether we are pressed upon our knees and we have to. What will it look like for us? That's what it looks like for him. Absolute glory, absolute authority. For us, what does it look like? Well, in this life, in the church, it should look like men and women serving each other. Deferring to one another. Helping one another. Sometimes warning or rebuking. And we even talked about that this morning in Sunday school. And it's amazing sometimes how the, how the uh, studies and the passages uh, blend together. Because we don't talk about rebuking every Sunday. But we talked about it twice today. But sometimes that's, that's what's required for love. Is a warning or, or a rebuke in love. Never to gain advantage. Never to get leverage over somebody. But always to spur more Christ-likeness. I want you to be more like Christ. And I hope you want me to be more like Christ. It should look like people eating together. Being together. Talking together. Reading the Bible together. Singing together. Laughing together. Sometimes crying together. And working together. These are the things that the body of Christ should be doing together. That's what it should look like. And then when Jesus comes, just as He got glory, He's promised to share it with us. Which is amazing. He earned it, but He wants to share it with us. So the glory that He earned by His perfect obedience, He will share. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may also be. The riches of God in heaven will be ours by adoption. Not by our marriage, but they will be ours. What a promise. What a promise. The things He's earned will be ours. So the principle here, glory follows humility for Christ and for us. Blessings follow obedience for Christ and for us. And honor follows service to others. If we make ourselves servants, we will, we will get honor. If we humble ourselves, we'll get glory. If we obey, we will be blessed. Do you want glory? Humble yourself. Do you want blessings? Obey, as Jesus did, all the way, in big things and in small. Do you want honor? Then serve others. I'm going to conclude uh, quickly here, and then we're going to have a time of, of communion that, that Cody's going to lead. Um, if, you, if the musicians would come up, I just have a few, a few closing words before we do that. But I want to be really clear. This is a great gospel passage. And it highlights what Jesus has done for us. He came from glory in heaven to an ungrateful world to be a servant. To be a servant. And his service specifically was to die on our behalf. And we killed him. And he allowed it. And why did he do it? Because God is not just a God of perfect love. He is a God of perfect love. But He is a God of perfect justice. And the sins and the wrongs that had been done had to be paid for. Because God demands perfect, perfect justice. So there had to be punishment. Because Jesus had not committed any sins of His own, He was able to pay for ours. And that is what He did. He did it willingly. And what He asks of us is to believe Him, to trust Him, that this payment is good. That this payment is enough to cover our sins and to trust Him. That is what He asks us, very simply. He calls us to come and believe and to accept His gift. If, we, if we've already believed, 
Then he calls us to live consistently with what we believe. And he calls us to be this church that he's, that he's building. To love each other. To humble ourselves with each other. And to take on the mind of Christ. In humility and service. To others. I'm going to close there.